0: Good morning, it's Thursday, February the 8th, 2024. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown, let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, the 12th annual Toronto Black Film Festival kicks off later this month. Jean-Francois Mien gives you a sneak peek. More Canadian schools are trying to figure out what to do with cell phones in the classroom. Don Dickinson explores the issue in a preview of Maclean's Magazine on AMI-audio. And your money. The RRSP contribution deadline is coming up in a couple of weeks. Aaron Broverman shares his perspective on RRSP loans. That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours. Thank you for taking the time to hang out this morning. Let's start in the world of politics for the top story of the day. New Democrat leader Jagmeet Singh says the liberal NDP political pact could collapse if the government does not make good on pharmacare legislation by March. Lisa Laporte has more.
1: Singh is making it clear any collapse in the deal that's intended to hold off a federal election until next year would be the fault of the Liberals. He says if the government doesn't deliver a bill by March the 1st, it would mean the Liberals are turning their backs on the party's agreement. In the so-called Supply and Confidence Agreement struck in 2022, the NDP promised to support the minority Liberal government on key votes in exchange for movement on shared priorities, including Pharmacare. Lisa Laporte, the Canadian Press.
0: This next story is one that hurts my heart. It's a media story. Bell is cutting 4,800 jobs. Don Kelly has the story.
2: The cuts represent about 9% of the company's workforce and include journalists. BCE says the affected radio stations are in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Atlantic Canada. This is the second major layoff since last spring when 6% of Bell Media jobs were eliminated and nine radio stations were either powered down or sold off. Don Kelly, the Canadian Press.
0: I took a look at some of the radio stations shutting down this morning. I'm not going to list them all off for you, but the vast majority are in small towns and small communities Which really stinks for a couple of reasons. It stinks because local radio really matters in small communities. It does. That's one of the reasons why I got into this business in the first place, the importance of local radio. The other thing that really, really stinks is a lot of those places are where aspiring young broadcasters get their start. This industry is rough some days. This industry is really... OK, let's uh, switch over to something a little bit different and uh, perhaps a bit more positive, depending on uh, where you land in the corporate pecking order, going across the Pacific into Australia, where Australia's government will allow workers to ignore calls and texts from their bosses outside of work hours. And as De La Couture files this report...
2: Australia introducing laws known as the right to disconnect, granting workers the right to ignore unreasonable calls and messages from their bosses when outside of work hours and without penalty. The proposal even calling for potential fines for employers that breach the rule. Lawmakers in favor of the measure say it would protect workers' rights and help restore work-life balance. In de la ABC News. At the foreign desk.
0: I hope you took note of that story because that's going to relate to the daily poll. But before you can grapple with today's question, let's put yesterday's question to bed at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Straight up and simple Do you have a life insurance plan? 73% of you said yes, and 27% of you said no. Leanne writes in No, can't have one on government assistance which is uh, a very, very good observation by Leanne. And uh, just a reminder, there was a really thoughtful conversation had with certified financial planner Ryan Chin yesterday all about life insurance plans. You can find that on the podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Just search for Now with Dave Brown. Don't forget to uh, like, subscribe, review, share with your friends, all that good stuff as well. Sharing is caring, as they say. Today's Daily Poll Is all about work-life balance at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Australia has introduced legislation that allows employees to disconnect during non-work hours. It's meant to improve work-life balance. I'm not asking you about the policy itself. I'm more curious about your own work-life balance. How are you at balancing work and life? Great, good, okay, or bad? I chose work and life specifically in the wording of the question, but I do think there's a bigger tent to be pitched around that. There are plenty of people who are students out there. There are plenty of people who spend their life dedicated to volunteering, which to my brain is a form of work as well, even if it's unpaid. And it's something that does take a little bit of your soul and a little bit of your soul and a little bit of your soul with every single action. Time is money, like I said earlier in the week. So, How are you at balancing work and life? Great, good, okay, or bad? Laura Bain, even on my most optimistic day, I'm probably just okay at balancing life and work. Uh, There are some days that are better than others, but even the good days are probably just okay.
3: Uh, let me try to organize my thoughts on this, Dave, because I really have a lot, you know, I I think that I'm quite good at this uh, naturally, because I've always been really aware of my own needs, like be they physical, emotion, emotional, mental, spiritual. So I'm someone with when I'm not getting those needs met, I feel it very painfully, and I feel it as burnout. Um, and so that kind of forces me to seek more balance. Um, but you know, I find this really puts me in tension with but <laughs> like how we've organized our society in North America, which I actually think is quite out of balance. And then when I add into that sort of disability-related fear of um, poverty and unemployment and, you know, feelings of imposter syndrome and inadequacy, that can kind of force me to kind of, you know, ignore my own bodily, emotional needs Mm. and um, uh, kind of go out of balance there. But I really think we need to question this whole premise, this whole concept of work, life balance which i really think is of just a function of capitalism which uh you know we <sighs> it speaks to a lot of people kind of not being able to work to their natural capacity and from a disability lens we do have different capacities that we can work to this kind of 40-hour 60-hour work week whatever it is doesn't work for everyone's body and everyone's minds and you know then on top of that i think a lot of us haven't been encouraged or given the opportunity to pursue our gifts and passions and i think that when you are able to pursue your gifts and passions and you're able to kind of work at your level of capacity, then you don't feel this need for like, quote unquote, work life balance, because what you're doing every day is actually making you feel alive mm. and is actually filling you up instead of just sort of trading your time so that you can meet your basic needs and then feeling like you need recovery time, which I think there's a lot of that when we talk about work life balance, we're talking about recovery time.
0: Yeah, it's a buzzword that companies like to float out there to say, we're really good at work life balance. And then you ask the question, well, how do you do that? Well, you know, uh, we just put the onus on you to figure out your work-life balance while continuing to ask you to go over and above daily. And I even, and again, I want to pull myself out of the question a little bit because there are plenty of people who cannot do work-life balance simply because compensation is so low relative to the cost of living in the world that we live in. So they have to work a 50 or 60 hour week and they don't have the choice to work-life balance because there's bills to pay, right? So I, I do try to make sure that I zoom out a little bit and don't just look at, things through my lens or my context but think about other people as well alex smith how are you on the uh, work-life balance issue yeah so i'll, I'll kind of speak to
4: to myself you guys have covered kind of those other areas quite well so in, in regards to myself i i would put myself between the okay and good you know sometimes it's it's easier and better than others but you know there. With any job, there there are points where you're going to have to you know work more than than you would like to, or go outside, whatever the parameters of uh, kind of what the standard hour operating hours are, just in the nature of the job. Dave, as you full well know, with with the role that you have, and then when you're away, I'm filling in for you. Sundays become a work day for us you because sure we have to prepare for for a Monday live morning show. So you know, for a lot of people, that's not necessarily a work-life balance, but you try to make it up. Just like when there are those times where it's like, okay the work is done you know you 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 can step away you can take time for yourself to make up for that I will also though have like constantly like I will always be in in uh available to be reached so I, I have access to my email on my phone I have our our messaging system teams on my phone so I am reachable even if I'm not necessarily at my desk so I, I find that's a good way to try to balance it. it's like I don't have to physically be in the seat every single moment but I'm still can be connected I can still be caught up because that's part of what I feel like I want to still be somewhat tapped in even when I'm not like kind of in the work hours because if something does come up I wanna know about it. So this is, I find it's a way of like that tug tug of war, right? Because you don't wanna get messages at two in the morning from from bosses and things like that. But you also don't wanna go in completely unaware that when you start your shift, it's like, oh, something needs to be addressed right away. Like I I like having a bit of a a heads up for when there's gonna be an issue or something coming
0: up. Different jobs have different needs. And certainly when you work in live television production, uh, yeah, it's sometimes a little bit different to utterly disconnect. In fact, I would be, uh, I, w- I would be upset if they told us that, hey, Dave, after two p.m. every day, you're not allowed to be back on the radar till seven a.m. every morning. Like that just mm-hmm. wouldn't that just wouldn't work for me. Like that, <laughs> that wouldn't fly. Like like that would that would negatively yeah. impact the work that I do, which would make me feel worse than having a bad work-life balance. <laughs> at accessible, that's because I'm an egomaniac. At accessible media on X, at accessible media Inc. on Facebook, that's where you can vote on social media formally, but you can also get involved via email feedback at AMI.ca, feedback at AMI.ca, or pick up the phone and give the show a call, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, more Canadian schools are trying to figure out what to do with cell phones in the classroom. Don Dickinson, dives a bit deeper into this issue with a preview of McLean's Magazine on AMI-audio. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in streaming audio at amiplus.ca. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Canadian schools are trying to figure out what to do about cell phone usage in the classroom. Earlier this week, the Toronto District School Board Trustees approved a revised policy on an existing cell phone ban. The revision tries to strike a balance between phones for educational purposes and also staying focused in class, limiting distractions. The topic was explored in this week's edition of McLean's Magazine on AMI-audio. Here's a clip from the show.
2: The prevailing attitude in education used to be that anyone critical of classroom tech was a dinosaur, and that we should just teach students to use phones responsibly. The problem, as we now know, is that phones aren't designed for that. Last October, dozens of American states sued Meta, alleging that apps like Instagram are harming children's mental health. After so many months spent forcing students to learn via screen during the pandemic, more teachers seem to be enthusiastic about experiential learning. Learning by doing.
0: Oh, gosh, I love Anastasia McLean's reading voice, top tier. Don Dickinson is the content curator of McLean's magazine on AMI Audio. He can shed a bit more light on the issue. Hey, good morning, Don.
2: Hi there, Dave. Yeah, it's quite the issue, isn't it?
0: Oh, it is. It it, it is quite the issue, and it's a complex one. But what are some of the statistics behind the increase of cell phone use among students?
2: Well, surprisingly, it's very high. Half of Canadian children between the ages of seven and 11 now have their own mobile device, a stat that jumps to 87%, Dave, for kids aged 12 to 17. And a large portion of this, believe it or not, or, 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 or a large reason for this is, of course, uh, um, you would think it would be the kids like, you know, demanding, but uh, it's the parents who want to be in constant touch, which is totally surprising. To me because I'm of that generation where your parents kicked you out the door and said come home for supper you know it's just uh, <laughs> you know it's just that they want to constantly be in touch with their kids
0: so why are schools having to grapple with this so directly in some cases it's provinces in some cases it's boards some cases it's individual schools why are schools trying to grapple with this right now
2: well you know there's a real problem because um, as the author says, uh, they can clearly see the impact of smartphones on socialization. They say that students now spend their recesses looking at their phones instead of interacting with each other. Violent incidences in schools are uh are way up, way up. And, of course, those incidences are then posted and streamed online for everyone to see. Right now, many provinces are also experiencing teacher shortages spurred on by difficult working uh, conditions Mm. where smartphones um, just... Basically, you're uh, exacerbating the situation. And I know this myself because I deal with a lot of, because of the charity that I deal with for my old high school. You know, the teachers are telling me that these incidents are really getting to be almost
0: common Yeah, in some cases, it's teachers being filmed by students. In other cases, it's students bullying each other with the digital devices in a a more silent way. Certainly, it's a distraction, but they are also valuable tools, right? A cell phone and technology is something that can be valuable and can be useful in guided context. So what's the bigger picture here, Don, in regards to different policies and different jurisdictions across Canada?
2: well it really varies um i mean across canada there's been all sorts of uh um decisions made the province of newfoundland and labrador announced this week alone that they will uh that they do not plan to go ahead with the ban despite cell phones being disruptive and a distraction in the classrooms the province believes it is up to the individual school or teachers to decide um On the other hand, you've got Quebec. Um, Quebec's ban came into effect uh, December uh, 31st uh, last year and applies to elementary and secondary schools with the aim of reducing distractions in class. Teachers do not... Do have the option to allow students to use their phones for specific teaching purposes. So I think there's a real um, variance in all uh, of the provinces as to how they're going to be dealing with this. But you know that's a bit of a a problem in and of itself, Dave. You know, because I know from the teachers I've spoken to, they do not want the uh, cell phones, uh, 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 smartphones in classrooms.
0: Okay, Don, let's uh, put a pin in that one. This will be explored again in the roundtable a little bit later in the show in segment eight, so in about uh, an hour and a half time, this topic will be revisited. But let's pivot to a different topic, and that's financial security. This article is titled, How Open Banking Can Fix Canada's Financial Security Issue. The article describes Canada's banking system is full of potential dangers for customers. A lot of it has to do with the rise of financial tech companies, companies that are apps, softwares, or other forms of technology that allow people or businesses to have digital access into their finances outside of the typical banking context. So through these fintech companies, there's a lot of data being shared. Why? Where does the security issue pop up for customers?
2: Well, this is scary stuff, Dave. Because anything that you're with your finances, you know, it's um, it's very important to keep that stuff private. And the problem is that most of the country's banks don't give Canadians a way to share all of the data securely. According to estimates from the federal government, nine million Canadians have simply just given away their online banking usernames and passwords to FinTechs, who then uh, log in on users' behalf to access, access data that they need. In some cases, using these fintech apps can avoid the agreements and warranties Canadians have with their banks. This means that users won't have anyone to bail them out if they wake up one day to find their accounts have been cleared by scammers.
0: Mm. The Canadian banking environment is an extremely regulated one, and a lot of these fintech companies are disruptors. So why is something like open banking, how does that, why is that the solution? How does that end up breaking? Some of these gaps?
2: Well, the solution basically is for the government to introduce consumer driven or open banking, a regulatory measure that's already been legalized and cleaned up. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, and, and cleaned up uh, this exact mess in the European Union and the UK. The measure is also coming soon to the United States, where the American Financial Consumer Protection Agency is leading the charge. Open banking works in two ways. First, the law compels banks to give their customers a more protected way to share financial data using an application program interface. Um, And that's known as an API. And an API is basically a translator for a computer application. And so... Really what it comes down to, Dave, without all the ins and outs, is that the banks have to do a better job of, uh, of giving us a system where you're not giving up all your private and uh, passwords and, and, and whatnot.
0: Yeah, it's about modernization. It's about understanding that financial tech companies are disrupting markets and people do want to use them because the interfaces are useful and because the information they're gleaning can also be helpful in building your own financial picture. But yeah, you've you've got to find a way to make sure that you can utilize these things in concert or at least find approved ways to connect these things. It goes back to the idea that the, the Canadian banking system is overly regulated for a good reason. That's one of the reasons why our economy didn't outright collapse in 2008, unlike our American friends. But the fact is, the regulation does leave a lot of competition and customer value out of the marketplace. So there's a balancing act to be struck here. But financial security is certainly a big one. I don't know if you've done the mandatory course training that we've had to do around AMI here about digital security recently, but it doesn't take much to fall down a financial security pothole.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I did the course ex- exactly uh, as you were referring to there Dave and uh, I get uh, I get more frightened every time I open up the computer, you know. It's just <laughs> you know, I, on my phone and, and and everywhere. You know, I got a I got a a, a notification this morning about paying my uh, uh you know, we have a transponder to go on the highway and it said that it, it was in arrears that we owed and I'm thinking wait a second. That's not the case, you know, but it's just one of those things that they're just, they're just trying to get you to click on,
0: you know, hit this link, hit this link. If you hit this link, good things are going to happen. Don, thank you for this. Have a great day.
2: Okay, Dave, take care. Bye-bye.
0: That's Don Dickinson, content curator at Maclean's magazine. The show airs weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI audio coming up next. The 12th annual Toronto black film festival kicks off later this month. Jean-François Mien gives you a sneak peek. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Toronto Black Film Festival returns later this month. It kicks off on February 15th and runs until the 20th. Jean-Francois Mien is the senior programmer of the festival, and he's here to give you a sneak peek of what's to come. Hey, Jean-Francois, thank you for making the time this morning. Great to chat with you.
5: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I'm uh, standing um my I'm standing right in front of a background here of our uh, poster, which is a very colorful, uh, colorful uh, dazzling poster with a um, a beautiful black woman there standing um, representing uh, the festival.
0: So I just want to let you in on that. Oh, thank you for that description. It's greatly appreciated. So this year marks the 12th anniversary of the festival. How has it evolved and grown over the years?
6: So,
5: yeah, it's it's grown in many, many ways. And um, the, the indicators of that are, um, there are a few indicators of that. There's the uh, partners that we've acquired over the years, like um, the Toronto uh, TD, uh, which has been with us for eight years. Then there's Tur- the Toronto Arts Council that also joined uh, Telefilm Canada as well and the Canada Council for the Arts. So uh, we've been fortunate to uh, to have some growth there, like in terms of, of allies and partners. Um, there's also, we also have uh, new features um, that have been added on over the years. We have a, a, a program uh, that's... Uh, kind of a one-of-a-kind, it's called the Being Black in Canada program, which is uh, designed to uh, support um, emerging Black filmmakers who are kind of underrepresented in the industry. Um, we also have a kids' film festival um, that's, a, that's a new feature uh, where we have activities and screening for kids where they get to um, enjoy immersion in the arts and uh, and film, uh, we also have live performances. Uh, we, we have uh, concerts um, after the screenings, uh, spoken word artists as well. So, so the platform has become, um, uh, the, the festival has become a platform for, for artists of all kinds, not just uh, filmmakers at this point, but also musicians who, uh, who come to, uh, to play after the screenings.
0: It's one of the things that I love about film festivals at this point—that it's well beyond just a couple of screenings. It's about a platforming of culture across the board and a gathering of great artists. Yeah, exactly,
5: exactly. It's it's uh, you know in the spirit of like uh, uh, immersion in the arts, you know. Yeah. making it an opportunity for for, for uh, artists from all, uh, all all walks of life
0: yeah. what goes into the selection of films because certainly there's a lot of great content to pick from so what are you and your colleagues looking for in terms of putting together a lineup
5: so it's very challenging you know we we go all around the world looking for films um, at this point uh, in our line this lineup this year we have um, 80 films from 20 different countries. And so what we really look for is um, uh, an opportunity to showcase uh, the diversity um, that we have in the black community, you know, and and to promote awareness of that. So uh, I feel like the greatest opportunity we have to learn is when we meet someone who is different from us And so I think our lineup reflects that. There's a lot of diversity there. There's a a lot of opportunities to learn uh, from different cultures.
0: There would be uh, not much left to do on the show today if we talked about all 80 films that are going to be screened. But there are a couple that you want to put a spotlight on this morning, including one of the films that's going to be a showing on opening night. Goodbye, Julia. Why was this a film that you wanted to? OK, well, I mean,
5: it's, it's an all around
0: great film. You know, all the all the elements uh, come together
5: in, in in a powerful way. So it, it's it's no surprise that this film is uh, Sudan's pick for the Oscars. Mm. You know, it's, it's, a, it's from Sudan. And, and it's just one of those films where everything comes together in a beautiful way. Um, so so that's, that's in, in the spirit of putting our best foot forward, that is the best film we could find uh, to open the festival. And um, it, since it's Oscar season right now, um, it's an important time to push this film um, to uh, to to make people aware of it, um, I, I know Lupita Nyango who who's a Hollywood actress, has has joined um, the producing team to kind of push the film in Hollywood. Um, so um, we want to push it here, and uh, we're really looking forward to showing it on opening night.
0: There is some local flavor as well. The Toronto shot thriller Sway. Uh, is is poised to possibly become a festival favorite this year? Why?
5: Well, I mean that is uh, one hell of a film, and, and it's homegrown. It's a it's a homegrown tour de force, I would say. Uh, it's Canadian film on adrenaline. Uh, it's also a black film, which is not so common uh, up here in Canada. Uh, here in Canada. Um, and it showcases some of the baddest uh, Canadian Black talent uh, we have. You know, there's Emmanuel Cabongo, Michelle Morgan, Lovell Adams-Gray, Brittany Raymond. So it's an opportunity to discover all these people in, in a film that's just um, such a thriller, such a thriller. So and, and so incredibly shot. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if these guys... Um, Uh, went south of the border uh, next year to make their next film because this one is such a showstopper.
0: Oh, it's like a trampoline. It's the big jumping off point, the big platform to uh, get started and get that ball rolling. Looking back across uh, the Atlantic from the international side, the Portuguese film Manga de Terra is set to make its Canadian premiere. What makes this film so special?
5: So this is, a, it's an incredible story. It's a story of um, of migration, of uh, finding solace in community and music. Um, and, and what really makes it special is the music in the film. Um, it's, it's music that's from the island of Cape Verde, um, which uh, is music that became famous, I guess, in the 90s with a Caesarea Vora, um, uh, you know, spreading it around the world. Um, but but what, what's really uh, uh, timely about this film, I would say, is that it's music about making uh, joy from pain, about making lemonade from lemons. And I feel at this time of the year, we need that. It's soulful, it's entertaining, and it will warm hearts. So I, I, think, um, I think it's a timely film for, for,
0: for, for, for the festival jean-francois one more question on the way out the door what are you hoping that audiences take away from the festival as a whole
5: well i'm hoping that people will um get perspective on on uh, what the black uh, uh, experience is what uh what culture can be found there and and um and uh, get a taste and 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 you know, get get uplifted um, by the films we have because there's a lot of uh, inspiration to be found there.
0: Jean-François, thank you for the time today. Thank you to you and your colleagues for the work that you do. Uh, looking forward to catching up again down the road. Best of luck. I imagine the next couple of weeks are going to be busy. Uh, the, the best kind of busy, but busy nonetheless.
5: Absolutely, and I can't wait. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: That's Jean-François Mier. Jean-François is the senior programmer at the Toronto Black Film Festival. The festival is running from February 15th to 20th. And for details, you can learn more by visiting torontoblackfilm.com. That's torontoblackfilm.com. In 60 seconds, Alex Smythe has the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minutes.
1: Canada's main stock index just barely stayed in the green yesterday. Toronto's TSX index added 11 points to close at 20,969. New York's Dow Jones average gained 156 points and the Nasdaq gained 147. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index surged 2% on strong corporate earnings reports in Japan. And our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 74.26 cents U.S. The federal government will hold its auto Auto theft Summit today in Ottawa, bringing together politicians, police, border agents, and auto industry leaders to better coordinate prevention of vehicle thefts. It's a growing problem. A report from insurance industry group Equity says insurers paid $1.2 billion in claims for stolen vehicles in Canada in 2022. Automakers say they're caught in a cat-and-mouse game with thieves, despite constant efforts to strengthen security measures in their vehicles. From the Canadian press Business Desk. I'm Karen Rebo.
0: Thank you very much, Karen. And just so you know... The conversation about the Auto Theft Summit will be one of the topics on the news panel tomorrow morning, sometime in the first hour of the show. Not sure what segment it's going to land in. I might be lapping Donald Trump upon your shores as part of the news panel. So that might go first, just to get it out of the way. But the Auto Theft Summit will be uh, brought to the news panel tomorrow alongside Michelle McQuigge and Joey Gupta. Let's turn to Alex Smythe for the weather story of the day. Alex, uh, people are a bit bummed in BC and Alberta for a lack of opportunities to hop on the slopes. Uh, Yeah, Dave, because it has been
4: one of the worst ski and snowboard seasons ever in BC and Alberta. And this is all due to the lack of precipitation that I've been uh, sharing and and detailing over the last uh, while. And the wild fluctuating weather that the region has been experiencing. It hasn't made it easy for natural snow to fall, build, and stay in the most popular ski region in the country. How bad has it been? Well, I got some statistics on the average snowfall and what has been found so far. So let's start with the most popular destination, Whistler. Whistler normally gets 1138 centimeters, 1138 centimeters. However, this year, they've only had 470 centimeters. That's not the only place, Big White, another very popular destination typically gets around 803 centimeters, but to date have only recorded 366 centimeters. And in Banff, Alberta, Sunshine Village, they typically get 590 centimeters snow. They've only had 295. Now, those are there's still a lot of snow in the area. They're still able to produce snow ma- and manufacture it, even though it's artificial, there's the positives there. However, when you look at places like Vancouver Island, the North shore of BC, that situation is even more dire because there's even been less precipitation, more warm weather that has stopped snow from being in that area. So you've even seen restrictions on some ski resorts and ski hills and even closures at different points because of the weather I did say though there is one bright spot and that's because the temperature has allowed for the conditions to make snow uh, in in the major spots so if you do go out if you do hit the slope you're still gonna have snow available to you it just may not be natural stuff falling from the sky it may be artificially manufactured just to give some uh, uh, kind of option for folks out there who want to hit the slopes.
0: Yeah, the artificial snow is fine and dandy, I suppose, but it's not as good as fresh pow-pow. And the thing is, when you're talking about the hardcore skiers, not not the weekend warriors like you and me who might never want to deviate beyond a a green circle or a (laughs) blue square run, but like the hardcore skiers who are working through the mountaintops, who want to do the glades, want to do some of the backcountry stuff. If there's no natural snow, there is none of that kind of skiing. And the fact is, if you're a hardcore skier, just going down the main, the main run eight or nine times in a day, it's not going to do it for you. It's not going to give you the rush, man well and and even uh beyond that you you look at um that
4: area so you look at like big white you look at sunshine valley you look at whistler those are major training grounds for olympic paralympic uh, skiers snowboarders high performance athletes beyond just those who are really passionate it's the high performers who need the best conditions possible in order to maximize training so there there are those concerns as well. Uh you know, we did see way back when Vancouver hosted the Olympics and Paralympics. I mean, they had to artificially manufacture snow because Whistler was not it was green, uh, having snow. It was snow. totally green, yeah. It was totally green. So, you know, this isn't unheard of, but it is part of that concerning trend that we've been, I've been following this year on what this winter has felt like, what it's looked like, and it's just another ripple
0: to the whole situation of how the weather has been impacting conditions this winter. Yeah, absolutely. Alex, thank you for this. That's Alex Smythe hanging 10 on a weather report. I know that's a surfing reference, but I felt like, you know, snowboarders and skiers occasionally get hanging up there in the air, popping their 1080s. Coming up next, the RRSP contribution deadline is coming up in a couple of Weeks, Aaron Broverman is going to be sharing his perspective on people who seek out RRSP loans to top up their annual contribution. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. The RRSP contribution deadline is in a few weeks. You might be tempted to top up your contribution to get an extra sweet tax return in the spring. Some investors consider using RRSP loans to create some extra savings now and a bigger return later. It's worth a broader discussion. Aaron Broverman is the lead editor at Forbes Advisor
7: Canada. Hey, good morning, Aaron. Good morning, Dave. Happy to talk about this topic with you with the deadline fast approaching on the 29th. Yes, sir. Looking forward to that. But
0: you're also wearing a Vancouver Canucks T-shirt or a sweater today. So at the end of the conversation, I'm going to pick your brain about the Canucks because I think you're showing a little bit of pride here. But let's start with money. Everyone's economic situation is unique. That is an understatement. Who do you think could benefit from an RRSP loan?
7: All right, so this is like a smaller pool, obviously, because it is a loan, but I would say if you're a seasonal worker and maybe you're not working right now, but you know you're going to get money later, that would be the type of person, also somebody who is in a higher tax bracket now, and uh, isn't gonna be there for long. Maybe they know that their job is at an end and they wanna take advantage of uh, the higher contribution that the loan would provide as long as they're in the higher tax bracket. Those are probably the only two situations that I would say it's it's appropriate to consider an RRSP loan, especially in uh, the interest rate environment that we are currently experiencing. Mm, I imagine the interest
0: rate side of this conversation is an important one. That should be one of the things that should give somebody pause because the practice has been around for quite some time, and that's a lot easier when that loan is at, say, 1.52% or 2.5% versus 567% these days.
7: Exactly, Dave. Like Ideally, you want to consider an RRSP loan when interest rates are lower, but now with the prime rate at 7.2%, you're looking at uh, possibly paying up to 8% interest on your loan. And of course, I'm going to bottom line you for a second, but you shouldn't be taking on uh, loans that you can't pay back. It's sort of a stone cold said so kind of thing, because (laughs) that's the bottom line.
0: Uh, Aaron, I I know that for years there are certain financial companies that have grown in popularity in Canada offering uh, people to utilize an RRSP loan as a debt consolidation. Like, let's say they were stuck in sort of a credit card debt scenario, that they would use the RRSP loan to top up the contribution, get the bigger tax return, consolidate the loan, and pay some of it off with the return. But again, it just goes back to this interest rate thing. Like you said, the bottom line is you can't make those dollars make sense if the actual interest you're paying on the loan is not so much significantly lower than the debt you've already accrued.
7: Exactly, exactly. And you better be using your return that you do get for that bigger contribution to pay back uh, the loan. Because if you're, you know, willy-nilly sort of – because you think you got extra money, you're going to be in trouble when it comes to uh, paying back this loan. Aaron, it's worth zooming out a little bit here because there are a lot of
0: social media financial influencers who have some interesting things to say, occasionally some useful things to say. But every now and then uh, they get on these bugaboos. And there are a few folks who have been openly trashing the RRSP as an investment account, talking a lot about the tax implications, the multiple taxation on dollars. I, I'm one of these people who understands that the RSP is not some magic wand that you wave that ultimately creates uh, you into a situation of utter uh, wealth. But I do think it's part of a well-balanced financial diet. What do you think of the RSP as an overall account, maybe in the broader context of the uh, options available to the average Canadian investor?
7: I mean, you have to understand the basic concept of the fact that it's uh, tax deferred. Right? It's not like your TFSA, which is completely tax free. A tax deferred means that you're paying taxes on withdrawals, even though you're not paying taxes on your contributions. So you have to know. That uh, if you do early withdrawal, and you you take that penalty or something, or uh, or you even withdraw in your retirement, even though you're going to hopefully be in a lower tax bracket at that point and paying less taxes, you will be paying taxes on on those withdrawals. So it's it's tax deferred, not tax free. Still, though, I think. It's a good thing to have. It's one of the unique things that that our government has to save for your retirement. So uh, you know, I, I would I would try to to open an RRSP, but maybe also you get a really good uh, retirement uh, plan from work. but you have to consider, am I going to be at this job forever? because if you leave that job, you know that that retirement plan sort of thing uh, can go away. Um, depending on uh, your specific work situation, so RSP is good. It's it's always there. It's just another avenue. So if you can contribute, uh, you should. It it goes back to the idea of well-balanced and
0: unique. Everyone's in their own unique situation. Uh, When you're talking about, uh, you know, contribution limits of up to $7,000 a year in the the tax-free savings account now, you know, I I understand the temptation of why perhaps the RRSP becomes the uh, forgotten child in the family because the TFSA, much like the Registered Disability Savings Plan for individuals who are eligible for the disability tax credit, you know, there's a menu available to people, but it doesn't mean that something is outright bad just because there might be relatively better options available for someone
7: yeah exactly like i would say if you have a disability i would go with the rdsp over the rsp just because of the government matching and and the contributions and 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 that sort of thing like that should be your primary investment vehicle for your retirement But if you need another avenue or you don't qualify for the RDSP because you can't get the disability tax credit for some reason, uh, the RRSP is there for you in conjunction with uh, the TFSA. But they all have limits, so it's nice to have uh, (laughs) these different pools that you can draw from. Yeah. If
0: anything, it's kind of cool. And it's one of the reminders about the importance of financial literacy. Okay. Aaron, let's uh, pivot to sports real quick here. You're rocking your Vancouver Canucks sweater. I imagine this might have something to do with the Canucks on an East Coast trip, uh, pounding away at the Carolina Hurricanes the other night, The the newly acquisition of Elias Lindholm, second line center from the Calgary Flames. I feel like there's optimism written all over your chest right now.
7: There is some optimism. As you know, I'm originally from Vancouver. I, I'm a person who can't really believe uh, the turnaround that we're experiencing after the Canucks have been in the basement uh, for l- the longest time. Last season, people were saying, you know, sell the team, that sort of thing. Plus, uh, I'm going to be in Vancouver in the next few weeks, and I might have an opportunity to attend an open practice. So Oh, finally. Very jazzed about uh, the Canucks' chances. I mean, I think I was watching a commercial, and they said the upcoming uh, matchup between the Boston Bruins and the Vancouver Canucks could be a Stanley Cup preview. Oof. Oof. Uh, so that's that's some optimism coming from <laughs> the uh, Sportsnet broadcasters, if I do say so
0: myself. <laughs> that might be too much optimism. That might be overly optimistic, but we'll take it nonetheless. Hey, Aaron, thank you for this, sir. Have a great day. Uh, Talk to you later. Bye. (laughs) That's Aaron Broverman, lead editor at Forbes Advisor Canada. In one minute, Laura Baines Entertainment Report will feature a new television show that might get your hands a little bit dirty. But first, astronomers have found evidence of an ocean on one of Saturn's moons. Ben Thomas has more in Tech Trends.
4: The moon looks a lot like the Death Star from Star Wars, thanks to one of the largest impact craters of any moon in the solar system. It's called MIMAS. It has an icy exterior, and a French-led team analyzing changes in its orbit and rotation have concluded the frozen crust likely hides an ocean only 5 to 15 million years old. They based their findings on observations by NASA's Cassini spacecraft, which observed Saturn and its more than 140 moons for more than a decade before burning up in the ringed planet's atmosphere in 2017. The findings open up the possibility of water and life at seemingly sterile moons, a potential habitable world, according to one of the study's co-authors. Results were published in the journal Nature. I'm Ben Thomas.
0: Thank you, Ben. I love space. I just love space. I love hearing stories about space. Except the asteroids that were headed towards us last week. That I didn't like. I didn't like that story. But they passed by. We made it. So, you know, we're all good. Living another day. Let's turn to Laura Bain for the Entertainment Report. Laura Bain, there's a new reality show coming to CBC that might get folks' hands a little bit dirty.
3: That's right. The Great Canadian Pottery Throwdown premieres tonight on CBC. (laughs) So if you're familiar with the Great Canadian Baking Show, it kind of shares some similarities with that, including that it's modeled after a British version of the show. Um, But basically, instead of bakers, it brings potters from across the country together to compete in various pottery-related challenges. Now, You know, this is a a bit surprising to me. The show is executive produced by Seth Rogen, who is apparently pretty into pottery and also (laughs) makes appearances throughout the show, including like very mild spoiler in tonight's episode where he's going to show off a bong that he made in the shape of Vancouver's (laughs) mountains. (laughs) Okay. All right. I like that. Um, but the actual host is Jennifer Robertson, who some might remember or recognize as Josh- Jocelyn Shit from Shit's Creek. I think she's going to be great at hosting that. Um, so, you know, Dave, Pottery, I don't know if you know this, Pottery is actually having a little bit of a moment right now. <laughs> and Ceramics Influencer on social media is a thing. And I, you know, this morning, I I don't like TikTok. I've been, I've said that just yesterday, I think. I went on TikTok to have a look. There are hashtag pottery, hashtag ceramics videos (laughs) out there with hundreds of thousands of views. Um, And apparently even Drake recently tried out a pottery class. But some of the sort of speculation on why this is popular right now is that people are looking for a break from technology. You know, you can't really touch your phone when you've got that pottery all over your hands. And it's a good way for people to connect with the earth, you know, touching the clay. And uh, also, you come away with something that you can use. That's practical, you know, like a coffee mug or a bong. In Seth <laughs> Rogan's case. <laughs> Uh, i was actually oh
0: sorry go ahead yeah no it, on on pottery and on the idea of of hobbies and pottery having a moment it it's very interesting that there are all these skills that are forming community through technology that allows you mm-hmm. to operate outside technology and then maybe bring it back to social defines community my mother got really into quilting and sewing during the pandemic and she has now built a wonderful community and network around her through sewing and quilting and it, it, it's just cool, right Like pottery sewing th- these these are actual skills that kept civilization going for thousands of years.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I personally just think it's kind of the best use of these sort of tools like social media. But, you know, I was into ceramics way back before it was cool. Actually, in high school, we got to do a career day and shadow like a stranger, anyone we wanted. And I shadowed a a ceramics artist. (laughs) Uh, And I also took a pottery class, which was 17-year-old me and a bunch of middle-aged women. So maybe it's time for me to get back into it. But this show is also reflecting a trend in reality tv and towards what's called gentle entertainment so this is low stakes competition lots of positivity and humor not too much dramatic temp- uh dramatic tension so basically the opposite of squid game gentle entertainment um and producers of the great canadian pottery throwdown say they hope that the show will be driven by a sense of being happily stressed out um i'm i'm here for this dave i watch tv mostly just to unwind and de-stress from the day i love competition shows where contestants like help each other out and stuff but what about you you've said you're trying to bring a little bit more levity into your consumption lately what do you think about the gentle entertainment genre
0: i had never heard of that expression until you forwarded along this morning, but I think it really hits the nail on the head, especially in the reality side or competition side of television programming right now. Everything is just so negative and yelling and screaming and drama that's that's really kind of manufactured, whereas this just seems like something that you can enjoy. It's, it's like the Canadian Bake Off show, right? There, there's a competition component involved. People are criticized when they fall short, but they also just have a lovely time doing it, and it's really easy to watch. There is room to be pressured and stressed with what you watched, and there's room for just stuff that makes to feel good as well. And because of the practicality of this, because this might actually help somebody develop a hobby or a skill that they can put forward in their life, I'm just all about this, Laura. You're not going to find me objecting to gentle (laughs) entertainment this morning.
3: feel like it's going to be better on my diet, perhaps, than watching the Great Canadian Baking Show, which basically (laughs) always makes me want to eat cake. Uh, But yeah, folks can check this out, 8 p.m. Eastern on CBC TV, and I checked, and episode one is actually available right now to stream on Gem. If anyone wants to go, jump on it right after uh, they finish watching now.
0: Yeah, don't you dare stop watching now with Dave Brown for the Pottery Show. Do that later. Do that later. (laughs) You know, there's Access Tech Live at noon. There's Kelly and Rummy at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Maybe after you consumed that maybe after you've watched this and the repeat of now with dave brown is on you can go watch that on gem but please you know leave leave the channel streaming give, give, give us those ratings anyway you know it's same thing with the podcast folks even if you just download and don't listen i'll still be your friends laura thank you for this
3: thanks dave have a good one
0: that's laura bain at the entertainment desk laura will, will be back tomorrow to talk all about about the entertainment components around the Super Bowl. In fact, from about 10 a.m. Eastern Time to about 10.35 to 10.40 a.m. Eastern Time tomorrow, it's going to be a whole lot of Super Bowl talk. We'll do some of the game stuff with Brock and Alex. We'll do some of the entertainment stuff with Laura. We'll talk commercials. We'll do a couple prop bets. We'll just get a general sense of the cultural phenomenon and touchstone that is the Super Bowl between 10 and 1040 tomorrow. You don't want to miss it. The preparation has already begun. Coming up after the break, it's the regional news update. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI TV and in streaming audio at AMIplus.ca. I'm Dave Brown. It's Thursday, February the 8th, 2024. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Meta is attempting to combat misinformation during the U.S. presidential campaign. Mark Flalo gives you the details and Mr. and Mrs. Smith has dropped on Amazon Prime. Entertainment critic Michael McNeely will review the series. But the hour begins with the regional news update. Starting in the prairies, police in Calgary have laid drug trafficking charges after a man handed out business cards with free samples of cocaine. Bill Graveland has more.
8: Calgary police officers became aware of the cards on Christmas Eve after they were handed out to patrons at a casino. Each card had a small baggie attached with a sample of suspected cocaine. Investigators began a drug investigation against the individual in January and last weekend searched his vehicle, recovering cocaine, individually portioned in more than 50 baggies, a digital scale and cash. A 30-year-old Calgary man faces a number of charges, including two counts of trafficking. Bill Graveland, the Canadian Press, Calgary.
0: And over to Ontario, the town of Belleville had a wave of drug overdoses this week. 17 people overdosed in a 24-hour span. Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Ethan Tomashi, says this is a small sample of a larger trend. This was...
4: A very concentrated uh, number um, of these tragic events in a short period of time, but when we look at the overall picture, uh, the impact um, in the way of overdoses from a contaminated, unregulated drug supply have been increasing in the community for a significant length of time now.
0: Belleville police asked residents to stay out of the downtown core on Tuesday as emergency crews rushed to treat people. And over to the Atlantic. Nova Scotia Health says the snow clearing situation in the province has improved enough that some non-emergency services can resume. Officials are still asking people to reschedule non-urgent appointments in certain areas. Schools and most government offices have been closed across Cape Breton all week. That's your look at the regional news. Let's bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat. Okay, Brock. A little bit of Blue Jays news to share this morning. There is some certainty around Vladimir Guerrero's contract. He won his arbitration case against the team yesterday and is now on a one-year contract for 19.6 million
9: dollars. Your reaction to uh, the Vlad Guerrero contract? Well, when you wanted uh, 20 million and you got 19.6, you're doing pretty well. Um, I I'm. Fine with the contract, it's part of the world that exists in sports with arbitration hearings and things like that. But I will tell you this, Dave, two things here. Number one is that I always worry about arbitration arbitration, and what it does between the relationship between the, the team and the athlete. You can do arbitration, but when you have to go to arbitration and fight for yourself, it really – I wonder – what it does for your future we have him under contract until 2025 when we'll have to go back to arbitration hearings possibly for next year and and whatnot but and and that's
0: and that's that's his that's their last year of arbitration control after 2025 he becomes a free agent
9: correct and that's and that's fine i just wonder what this does for his long long term and the relationship with the team secondly I, i i worry about um, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. In the sense of, we've heard all the time, oh, he's in the best shape of his life. Oh, he's gonna have a good year. He's gonna do this. He's gonna do that. He's gonna he's gonna be what we want him to be. I I think that's fine. I don't think he. I think he's gonna be better than he was last year. I think it's gonna be a thing. But I also think that we, sort of unfairly compare him to what we hope he's gonna be. In that we hope he's gonna be somewhere close to his father, Vladimir Guerrero Sr. And I just don't see that from from Vladimir right now. I see him as a good baseball player, above average baseball player, sure. I just don't see him ever rising above to that potential of his father. And I think he's sort of unfairly compared in that light
0: still 25 years old. He's still a very young man. Like, he's still way early in his career. This this is a new trend in baseball, to have young players emerging this early in their careers. So I, I, I think it's probably too early to start deciding whether or not he can rise to the level of his father, who is one of the most electrifying baseball players of all time. Brock, you talked about uh, some of the issues with arbitration to the— credit of the Toronto Blue Jays, this is the first time they've actually had an arbitration case go before the arbitrator. They have settled every single one of their arbitration cases before a hearing since 2019. Uh, And the actual gap between what Vlad was asking for and what they were offering was quite low. He He was asking for something just below $20 million, and they were offering something just over $18 million. And maybe that's what you're getting at in regards to a fractured relationship, that these guys, found themselves bickering over 1.5 million dollars
9: right and i think you know you you often see you know when people get into these these sort of situations you see people tens of millions of dollars away from each other and we're only talking you know a little over a million dollars you know and i and i just don't know the necessary reason to do that and to go through it but hey I mean, these are the things. Sometimes when you do these arbitration things, somebody leaves a little more happy than others. But I don't think either side is too much like, oh, he got an unfair side because they were so close anyway yeah. in what they wanted.
0: Brock, let's pivot to women's hockey. There is an international event going on right now that typically was seen as a massive marquee event. But this Canada-USA series, I don't know, doesn't feel as marquee this year in the context of the Professional Women's Hockey League.
9: No, it doesn't. And they're finishing up a series uh, that uh, was started in the later part of 2023. Uh, Right now, the best-of-seven series is 3-2. Canada uh, staved off elimination from the series last night. It was quite an entertaining game. But uh, the question I would pose is, now with the Professional Women's Hockey League, Do we need this Canada-U.S. rivalry series? I'm leaning towards not so much. I understand why we had it when we did, because there was no official league, there was none of that. But now if we're only going to say we're doing this rivalry series and it's only going to be Canada-U.S. the for basically tune-up purposes, I would argue... I don't know that we need it. Your thoughts on this? Yeah, I'm, I'm inclined
0: to agree. I love the rivalry between Canada and the United States in women's hockey. It's amazing, but perhaps it's time to limit that to an actual World Championship once a year and the Olympics uh, once every four years, and really put focus during the season on the Professional Women's Hockey League. There, there, there's, you know, there's room for an exhibition here and there, but it feels like the context has changed quite a bit in the last 12 months. Certainly in the two to three months with the ongoing success of the pwhl and like i said it's a marquee event that feels a little bit less marquee but still draws eyeballs and still involves a tv contract that involves the players getting paid so you know what more money in the women's pocket go for it but my inclination would be try to focus on the work of the pwhl
9: i'm honestly i'm less inclined to watch it uh this rivalry series because of the professional women's hockey league and the reason i brought it i watched it last night was because i was bringing forth this topic so i it's just i wasn't so gripped last night where it's like oh this was a great game and the score was good and canada comes back and that's all well and good but i found myself asking do we really need it and i came to the conclusion of no i don't think so
0: yeah, but if there's money, if there's money to be generated for the athletes, then you know, then then who am I to say? because yeah. even in the PW PWHL, it's not like any of these athletes are becoming millionaires on this. So if it's still an injection of money into the sport and into the programs, I mean that 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 offers value as well. It really doesn't matter what you or I think.
9: Uh, Brock and, <laughs> and eyeballs to what you pointed out earlier. Yeah, the eyeballs. eyeballs is, yeah. Is,
0: but but really and truly, like right now, the the important thing is the growth of the domestic professional product and continuing to foster and grow the programs in Czechia, Finland, Sweden, uh, Russia. Whenever whenever they straighten that out internationally, the like the the. But the purpose still needs to be growing the sport internationally. And just having rivalry series doesn't necessarily scratch the itch that it used to. Okay, Brock, one more note about international women's sports. The Canadian women's basketball team Olympic qualification process is underway.
9: Yes, it is. And uh, Canada will play Hungary today and uh, Spain on Friday as part of this uh beginning of the um of the qualification process. My understanding is that the uh top ten uh teams will make it when this is all said and done. Uh I just wanna push people to uh to, to get behind uh this team as well as we did with the men's I think that this team has very good talent, uh beginning and ending with uh Kia nurse and I think you know we should we should watch them it's been put on tv and talk about women's sports you should you should support it so today's game begins at uh, twelve fifty, and then there's another one on friday so it's it's carried on uh, Sportsnet and uh watch it because i enjoyed watching the men's and let's get behind the women here
0: very good brock thank you for this talk to you tomorrow all about the super bowl indeed we will All righty, that's Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk. Coming up after the break, Meta is attempting to combat misinformation during the U.S. presidential election campaign. Marco Aflalo has some of the details. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. Much to my journalistic chagrin, it's a presidential election year in the United States. Big tech companies are looking for ways to combat misinformation that pops up during the campaigns. Meta is one of them. Mark Aflalo has the details. Mark is the co-host of Access Tech Live. Hey, good morning, Mark.
10: Good morning, Mr. Brown.
0: How are you? Mark, I'm good. Uh, Misinformation is not necessarily a new thing. But with the rise of AI and deepfakes and computer-generated videos that are not true, that puts social media platforms in an even more complicated position. So how is Meta planning to deal with the rise of AI-generated deepfakes?
10: Well, they're going to start tagging um, images and videos that they detect were created by AI. Obviously, this is not a perfect system just yet. This is going to take some time for basically AI to detect AI. Um, But they're going to be tagging things in a way that shows the user and presents them with the fact that this item may or is confirmed to have been automatically generated and not necessarily true. Their way of kind of saying, okay... We can't necessarily catch all this misinformation, but we can at least present you with as much information as we can about it so that you make your own judgment calls as a result. Mark, it strikes me that it's quite complicated to utilize
0: AI to battle AI because it makes you wonder if the nefarious AI is going to be better than the social media generated AI, which also one day could be nefarious.
10: Yeah, no it it it's it's kind of funny how they want to use AI to detect it, but there will be an element of human intervention here as well to make sure that they're kind of teaching it the right steps or the right things to look for, you know. At the end of the day, if someone photoshops an image and then compresses it and uploads it, it's it's hard to determine that, you know. So what elements or what kind of points of recognition can they use to see if something is real or not? That's going to be the hard point. And then as a consumer, as someone just looking at this stuff, so, okay, so you, you tag something and say this might not be real. What am I then going to do with that? You know, this is the same thing I think they need to take to the written word sometimes. Or even some of the video storytelling that's out there, and and put the onus almost on the person as well who's presenting the information to do a little bit better of a job to at least you know cite their sources. Yeah, how flagrant, flagrant, how flagrant are the tags going to be? I sort of
0: uh, mixing up my syllables there and my emphases on the wrong syllable, <laughs> but how flagrant are the tags going to be? How noticeable will it be for a user?
10: it'll be like a top top left hand kind of corner corner um, ai like a little icon but they're also going to subtitle each photo as well and i'm also told they're going to be alt tagging it as well so that the, those people who use screen readers will have that same information access to that information as well so it'll be it'll be in your face it'll be it will be not uh not unobvious. is that a word i like
0: that I, I like, we'll that. That, I like that i like i like that you <laughs> and i sometimes create together with our misuse of the english language we have to, that, yeah exactly well you know we can blame the fact that we, we we both grew up in montreal where you know we learned a little bit of sure. french Play, and sometimes we, uh, we mess around with how we do the English language. We just do it a little different, you know? It works uh, for me. <laughs> Mark, what's the, what's the rollout plan on this? Is it, is it already in effect?
10: Already starting to roll out on the meta platforms, which means obviously Facebook, uh, Instagram. We're expecting to see other companies follow suit and do something similar. I mean, this is something that should be done across every website that exists out there if there's a way to do it. And I think we'll start to see tools that will actually be created to allow you to do it in various different sites like WordPress and, you know, various building platforms mm-hmm. let you almost do it automatically. It will become second nature, I think. Mark, I want to ask you an
0: opinion question, but then I want to ask you a personal question related to this. So, The opinion question is how successful do you think campaigns like this will be within big tech companies? How successful do you think their AI will be in combating other AI?
10: I I think that um, success is measured by certain key points. And I think internally within the company, if their goal is to just flag things and let you take the onus on you afterwards to do what you will. they'll be fairly successful in in programming their AI to detect it. As for what the information is done with afterwards, I don't think they measure their success on that because they don't really control it. So I, I think they'll be fairly successful in actually tagging the items that that don't actually come from real sources. Here's where the personal question comes in. Yeah. I'd like
0: to think I've got a pretty good radar for when I'm consuming the content that is a deep fake or AI generated, et cetera, et cetera. There's, like you said, a certain graininess about it, there's a certain Auto tune about it, but I also consider myself to be someone who's quite tech literate and someone who is quite media literate. So I put these two things together. I would like to think I'm fairly good at recognizing the real from the fake. Of course, <laughs> maybe we could put that to test to test one day on the show and see how I actually do, and then my uh, entire confidence can be destroyed and eviscerated yeah, exactly. within me. But Mark, how how are you in
10: terms uh, in terms of doing some of that evaluation? I I'd probably say I'm I'm up there in terms of I would say let's say 75% accurate there are the the odd headline that 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 is is quite obviously uh, clickbait. And then once you read into the article, you're like, there's no way this is true. Those are the ones that catch me. The ones that just kind of fly by quickly. And it's like, you know, Joe Biden did this. And then you're like, what? And then you look, read the article. like, And then now this is not, this is not true. So uh, I'd say 75%, 25. But I mean, I don't, you know, if you watched Access Tech Live last week, we did this test with uh, AI voices and no one got it right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So... On the on the audio,
0: <laughs> on the audio books, right? You were putting exactly. Ramya and Jacob and Stephen to the test.
10: Yeah. So, and they all failed. They all thought it was uh, there were an element of human <laughs> and AI, and it was all AI. So it's getting good. It's getting really
0: good. Oh, there's there's the trick question master yeah. over there, Mark Aflalo. I know your tricks. I I know your tricks now, Mr. Aflalo. You're not going to slip one by me. Uh, speaking oh, we'll late. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of speaking of Access Tech Live, what's coming up on the show today?
10: Uh, this is going to be a little bit of a PG rated show today, Dave, because uh, we're talking about sex. We're going to be talking about sex and uh, the uh, intercession, intersection of sex and disability and accessibility. It's going to be an interesting one. Uh,
0: naughty boy over there, Mark Flalo in the West Island of
10: Montreal. Mark, thank
0: you for this. No problem there. That's Marco Flalo. He's one of the co-hosts of Access Tech Live. You can find the show noon Eastern time, Thursdays on AMI-TV. You can find The Pulse weekends on AMI-audio. This weekend, The Pulse explores the importance of emergency preparedness for people with disabilities. Joita Gupta will chat with Caitlin Lowe of Dalhousie University. That's The Pulse, weekends, 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. If you missed the live show, you can always find the podcast or check it out on YouTube. Coming up after the break, Mr. and Mrs. Smith has debuted on Amazon Prime. Entertainment critic Michael McNeely has a review of the series. But first, here is the Paris Sport update with Greg Westlake. <music>
11: Hello and welcome back to the Parasport Update, produced in collaboration with the Canadian Paralympic Committee. I'm Greg Westlake. Canada's winter athletes continue their hot start to open the year. In his second World Cup Para Alpine Skiing event, Cale Erickson won the slalom in the visually impaired category on the slopes of Cortina, Tempezo, Italy. Kurt Owe won a silver in the downhill and a bronze in the Super G sitting classification. Alexis Gouman picked up a bronze in the standing Super G. Next up for Canada's skiers is the national championships in Kimberley, BC, from February 14th to the 16th. Staying in Italy, Canada's Paranordic stars dashed to the podium in their second World Cup race of the season. Marco Rents picked up his third gold in a row, while Brittany Hudak claimed her first World Cup victory of the season. Natalie Wilkie finished on the podium with a bronze. From the snow to the water, the City Para Swimming World Series 2024 took place in Aberdeen, Scotland last week. Opening the season strong, Orly Rivard and Tess Rutliff both captured three gold medals. Danielle Doris, James LaRue, and Philippe Vachon also won gold. Arianna Hunsicker secured multiple medals, and Nicholas Guy-Turbide, Katie Kosgriff, and Reed Maxwell all reached the podium. And that's our time for this edition of the Parasport Update, presented by AMI-audio. Check back next week for more news from the world of adaptive sports.
0: Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Amazon Studio has reimagined the 2005 film Mr. and Mrs. Smith into a new series. It stars Donald Glover and Maya Erskine as the respective title characters. Before Michael McNeely gives you a review, let's take a sneak peek at the trailer. The series is rated 16+, so the following clip does contain some gun use.
7: A man joins a woman
0: in an elevator.
1: I'm
8: Jane. I'm John.
0: They shake hands, then look away from each other. They peruse identity documents, banking card, and marriage
6: registration.
0: An envelope contains wedding rings. We're married.
1: Yeah, I guess we're
10: married. Right.
0: At a mountain ski resort, they install a hidden camera in a room. They didn't bring up that we'd be paired into the last interview.
1: It's an old KGB tactic. They draw less attention as a couple.
7: Agents repel down a cliff. The Smiths fire guns. A bomb scatters a crowd. Very romantic. John spots a vehicle chasing them.
1: What is it that you two do?
7: Jane loads a gun and fires at their pursuers. We're software engineers. engineers. <laughs> Administer single dose, no casualties. They both inject the target. What?
3: You think if the company hadn't matched you, you'd be
10: compatible? At a camp. You're, You're a sitting baby. underneath a shelter I made. I oh, made this fire. I man, got you this fish. Shelter, food,
3: fire, water.
12: No.
7: Maybe. <clears throat>
0: Entertainment critic Michael McNeely is almost done the series and has some thoughts on it so far. Michael's in studio alongside his intervener, Jillian. Hey, good morning, Michael. Good morning. How are you? Michael, I'm good. I'm genuinely curious to know what you thought about this show because it's been advertised all over my Amazon television. (laughs) There are eight episodes in total. You've got a couple more to go. How are you liking the show so far?
8: I'm enjoying it, I think. I'm just trying to take my time with it so I don't get too burned out, but uh, I'm actually really into indie episodes. I like the, the stunts. I like the jokes. I like the chemistry between the leads. I like the, you know, the missions, and I'm also curious about what happens next.
0: Mr. and Mrs. Smith is not a new story. This is a reimagining. Of course, there was the famous film with Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie that may have uh, broken up a marriage uh, (laughs) in Hollywood. There was also a series in 1996 on CBS. So from what you've put together, how does the new series compare to the previous versions of storytelling?
8: I don't give any spoilers. The first five minutes of this new series, they get rid of the old Mr. and Mrs. Smith altogether. So, I think what's interesting about the Mr. and Mrs. Smith movie in 2005 was that it spearheaded a new romance for Brad Pitt and destroyed a marriage. Um, I'm assuming that this film or this, this TV show will not do any of that. Um, One of the main differences is that in the 2005 movie, the agents were supposed to try and kill each other. In the series, they're not trying to kill each other yet. Maybe it might happen. I have no idea. But I think the series is more focused on character building and getting to know each other, because what's really interesting is we spend a lifetime in the series talking about why we want to be spies. And what that means, and that usually means that someone is lonely, someone that doesn't have any friends or family, they're the perfect spies because they're not used to, you know, they're not used to having connections with other people. And then once you start to have a connection with somebody, you're pretty much a target.
0: You mentioned you did enjoy the chemistry between the actors. How is the series putting forward some of that tension that the 2005 film was rich with?
8: I remember the 2005 film had them trying to kill each other, and that was really the first film I watched that I learned that, you know, you can try and kill someone and still love them. Um, But that's kind of twisted. So I think here it's just two lonely people that got assigned to be partners from a spy organization, so they're pretending to be a couple. Mm. And then they decide, you know, Why not? Let's do the rest of the couple things too. And ultimately, it does seem like this organization recognizes that people will do that. So, you know, it's like being in an arranged marriage, but then you start to fall in love with the person, um, which does happen. But here, I think the chemistry is mostly just character building. It's not through aggression, it's not through violence, it's more like oh, you're doing the same mission I am, cool, let's hang out, let's see where things go." And of course, it's added to the part where Donald Glover takes his shirt off. I guess that's more or less how you get some added chemistry there. <laughs> um, but that's, it's interesting, too, because Donald Glover is the one that takes his shirt off, Maya Erskine doesn't need to do anything like that, so I'm really glad for the show, because at least it doesn't, you know, you don't have to subtract the women to the same stairs um, and I really like their dialogue, but, because they talk about anything and everything. When they're doing stakeouts and when they're waiting for stuff, they talk about their favorite TV show. They talk about their favorite sports. That's really like they're on the first date throughout mm. this entire mission. So it's like, OK, let's, let's forget the action and we'll hear more about what you guys want to say to each other.
0: You mentioned the character development, the strong acting, the good chemistry. How does the series balance that against a plot that moves forward? Because when I think about a spy series, I want some excitement here, Michael. I want some action.
8: It's true. I've been thinking about a lot of the spy series and movies I've enjoyed in the past, like Alias with Jennifer Garner and Mission Impossible. Um, I think—I think what you do is you get both. I think you get the talking to the action, and you get the action to the talking, and you get lots of interesting set pieces. I'm hoping that our friends were able to describe how beautiful the ski resort looked at the, um, in the trailer. That is an entire episode, and the mountains is just so incredible to look at. And then you know there's going to be some skiing, there's going to be some chases, there's going to be shootouts. So you're not disappointed, it's just a matter of waiting for the... Tension to drop, and they find funny ways to have the action set pieces. For example, um, in one of the episodes, they have to take care of a, a man who is just a giant baby. So they have to protect him, and they have to shoot all the people that are trying to kill him. And it's just hilarious, because the man is not really helping himself. And it's like, you know, why, why am I here? Get me out of here. And they're like, shh, just be quiet. But, um, you know, I think it's just—I think it's a comedy action type of thing. and think mm-hmm. that's, that's where it is, but it's also serious action, too, if that sense.
0: No matter what you were going to say about this series, I was going to hit play, and the fundamental reason is the lead actor, Donald Glover. It's been about 15 years since Community hit the airwaves on NBC, and in those 15 years, he has probably been one of the most important people in pop culture, whether it be through acting on Community the show that he made called Atlanta, which was excellent, it's through some of his really excellent music, through his uh, rapping alias as Childish Gambino. I was going to hit play on this no matter what, but what are your thoughts on Donald Glover as as just a piece of the pop culture puzzle that has been put together in the last decade and a half?
8: I know my father and I watched Swan He was behind that, and that's the show that he did after Atlanta. and. With, when he did Atlanta, he was challenged to have more of a, a female perspective. So that's why he moved on to Swam and then he actually started working with um, I.R. Uh, Obama, President Obama's daughter, on that show. So he's very creative. He's endlessly creative. He's funny. He's very, um, he's very humble, despite having these Tom Cruise moments in the show. I feel like I would love to work with him sometime. Um, I think, ultimately, too, is just the energy that he brings to his performance. I feel like they're doing—they're going in directions that we never had before. They're going in directions where they embrace their race and their identity on the show. Uh, Both Maya and Donald—Maya is Asian, and Donald calls himself African-American on the show. And they both use that to their advantage in spy missions. So it's really creative to see that. And it, feels, and it makes me feel like I've been missing a lot in my spy shows with a lack of diversity. Mm. Um, and finally, I'm excited as you are for the new community movie, whatever that happens to be. I guess they've just decided to get rid of Chevy Chase. This is probably best for all of us.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of uh, complicated people around community, whether it be Dan Harmon himself, the creator of the show, the head writer, or uh, Chevy Chase as well. But I know there are still a lot of community heads who are excited for that one. So, Michael, you haven't quite finished the first season here yet. I can tell that you like it. Do you think this might be rich for a second season
8: or an ongoing series here? As we've talked about, it's always good to get out early. You know, don't overstay your welcome. So I would say that I think um, it just depends on the next three episodes for me. I'm happy to give you a quick answer next time, but... It feels like, you know, have you dealt with everything in the plot? Have you dealt with all this bad stuff that you need to? Then just move on to another project. I don't Mm. think there's any harm in that, because the last thing I would want is people having a sour taste of the show. Yeah.
0: Maybe it's a situation, though, where it becomes a little bit like the American Horror Story model, where you perhaps recast or reset Every, every season in a different way just to keep the model, the, the, the familiar style of storytelling, but just recast it and reset it every season and just keep calling it Mr. and Mrs. Smith?
8: No, I thought that's a good idea. I thought the whole idea behind Mr. and Mrs. Smith is that anybody it could be Mr. and Mrs. Smith. It could be me and Jillian um, without the romance, obviously, but it would just be... You know, you can have different people take on the identity, and I'd be interested in having a show called Mr. Mr. and Mr. or Mrs. and Mrs. Yeah, yeah. Or even having—getting rid of the gender altogether. Smith & Smith. All right. Okay. All right. I like that one. Michael, thank you for this. Have a great day. You, too. And thank you for having me. And I want to say the most important gadget that you can have is a flashlight, as I had a flashlight during the power outage last week. And I'm very happy I did.
0: Yeah, always have a flashlight, and don't count on the flashlight on your phone. You definitely want to be going beyond the phone flashlight, because that battery needs to be kept in a a different way, so, yeah, 100%. Flashlight is a must, and charging banks for your cell phone. Gotta have a charging bank for your cell phone. Multiple external batteries.
8: I think you need to... Jillian was the one that gave me some spy techniques. She taught me how to charge my phone with my laptop. So ok,
0: not, yeah, no <laughs> yeah, use energy for energy. Well done by Jillian, and well done by you. That's Michael McNeely, Entertainment Critic with a review of Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Just a reminder, the show is rated sixteen plus a little more mature for you. It is available on Amazon Prime, and yeah, I've got an Amazon-powered television, and it has been advertised to me relentlessly every time I turn on my TV in the last couple of weeks. Coming up next, where do you land on the idea of having a ban on cell phones in school classrooms? Alex Smythe poses that question to the Roundtable chat. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in streaming audio at amiplus.ca. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. Nazreen Abdelmajid is standing by for a roundtable conversation. Alex Smythe, you want to revisit something that came up with Don Dickinson in the second segment of the show?
4: Yeah, Dave. It's all around the idea of cell phone bans in schools. You know, this has been in the news quite uh, uh, kind of prominently over the last little while because you had Quebec uh, Institute of ban starting this year. Ontario had a ban in place since 2019 but the Toronto District School Board just voted to uh, uh, change the policies around it. Uh, Newfoundland and Labrador this week announced that they would not be instituting a ban despite saying they are a nuisance in schools and in the classroom so all this I wanted to kind of get the perspective from the round table bring this topic forward see what everyone's experience with cell phones and schools was and where do they land on the idea of banning cell phones in the classroom so Reen, let's start with you how do you feel about the idea of banning cell phones from classrooms
12: i agree i agree with banning cell phones in classrooms uh but you know when you're in school in the hallways you can have them out it's no problem because it comes to the point where i talk to my cousins my little cousins now they're in element, uh they're uh, in middle school and they talk about how their teachers make tiktoks with them and 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 they make tiktoks in classrooms and while they're supposed to be learning and and I think that's just excessive that's a it became too excessive at this point where I would agree back then that yeah you can you can use your cell phones in school uh, in classrooms you know if you're searching for the internet I guess if you're searching for something um, but I think there's a there's a line that needs to be drawn here because you know, back in my day, we weren't allowed to have cell phones, not even in in the hallways. So, yeah. I so. just I
0: just love it every time Nazreen drops a back in my day. It's like back your day wasn't day. that long ago. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago. Like, my gosh, my goodness. Uh, Alex Smythe, you and wow. I have been sharing this airspace together every day for about 18 months. I'm, I'm sure you will not find this take surprising. I'm generally opposed to any kind of blanket ban because I can see the value of having technology and cell phones in classrooms. I just think there needs to be a detailed policy and plan in place and an understanding of when the cell phones have to go away mm. I, I you know Nazarrina sort of saying not in the classroom but yes in the hallway I'm, I'm not even willing to, to go that far I, I can still see a world where the phone in the classroom has a use case whether it be via research or whether it even be via making the classroom fun I see the downside too too, but I'm just opposed to any kind of blanket ban on pretty much anything
4: yeah so and and, and that thought is really what kind of uh, triggered the idea for the Toronto District School Board to kind of make those pol- uh, vote for those policy changes because you know Ontario had that blanket ban but it doesn't seem to work it doesn't get enforced I, I side a bit closer to Nasreen on the idea of a blanket ban even though it's kind of I, I just said it's proven not to be all that effective or enforced I think that the, there is an over-reliance in the classroom to have access to the internet. Uh, what I would like to see is, why are we kind of really focusing in on oh we need to do research on the internet in the classroom I, I think that is really the key it's to change how things are being presented taught and in, in the instruction being given to the students I, I have no issue with using technology for research purposes I just don't think that is an effective use of classroom time to be doing the research in that space yeah you know you could have it that it's like oh here here is time that okay you can pull out your phones you can do research but that shouldn't be as part of the classroom time so to speak more like how it is done in university and colleges that kind of mentality that you have time and space available to you but when you're in the classroom you're getting instruction yeah. Uh, so that's where I kind of view is like how we could change it, how we could adopt it. Yeah, you're not doing a, necessarily like the full ban outright, but I, I just think it's too much of a temptation. People are not going to listen. Kids are going to pull out their cell phones. They're going to be on it regardless. They're going to text friends or do whatever. It, it is such a distraction. It's, it's designed to be an enticing piece of technology and fun. I understand what you're saying too, though, Dave, that there there should be an element of, of fun. But I think how we approach the teaching overall could uh, could address this issue in a clearer way.
0: I, I'm going to tell a story here, and I'm going to try to do it with a little bit of care, because it was told to me this morning by a colleague, and I, I don't know if I want to betray too many confidences here, but their daughter was in a situation a couple of years ago where an individual went into the school with a gun, and students were not supposed to have a cell phone on them in classrooms— But as this was unfolding, the individual was able to text with her daughter and share information and say, hey, this is what's going on. And there was an actual open line of communication. So perhaps the idea of an outright banning of cell phones might be, hey, I don't want this visible in your hands or on your desk during the course of a class, but I don't want to see a situation where, it's, where the school or the board or the province is saying, it's got to be in your locker or it's got to be locked away in one of those safety bags, like they're using it constantly comedy shows now and music shows now, I'm just empathetic to the fact that we live in a modern world where communication and information is important, and there are going to be moments of times of crisis when you want kids to have access to information. Alex, I know it's an extreme example, but, but I think it's relevant to the overall conversation.
4: And so how do you feel about the idea of just having an open cubby in the classroom? You just put it in, You know, it's in plain view, it's not locked, it's just there, it's open, it's accessible, that you can still reach it, you can go, if you're gonna leave the classroom, you can go grab it on your way out and you go into the hallway and you use it, something like that. It's just not in your hand at your desk during that core instruction
0: time. I I, I think that's where I'd view it. I would be empathetic to that compromise, Nazreen, what do you think?
12: I don't think that would work because I feel like there's a lot of open opportunity for stealing those cell phones oh. or, or, you know, it's, I think I know these high school students, man. Um, but <laughs> no, I, I, I agree with you, Dave, on terms of there shouldn't be a total ban, but there should be a line drawn when you are able to use your cell phones in class. I mean, put it away you can't have it out. Um, and if you're, you know, if they say that you're researching for something, okay, you can have it out. But there there should be a line, not it, it's always out in front of you making videos, taking selfies, <laughs> going on social media, whatever it may be. Um, there's there's a line that should be drawn when it comes to these students.
0: Yeah, I you know one of one of the reasons why I'm I'm not uh, outright screaming about bands here is because as I sit here with a laptop in front of me, there are two cell phones <laughs> inside arm arms reach as well. So perhaps perhaps Nizreen, where I'm landing on this is that we as people who are aging, even though you're a little smidge younger than me and Alex. Perhaps we just have to have a more modern understanding of what school should be. And if technology is going to be deeply part of these kids' lives as they get older, Mm -hmm. from a young age, there should be a test case for teaching them how to use the technology. Like, like it's a learning opportunity as well. And I don't mean that in terms of just outright research. I mean, actual media technology literacy. Mm
4: -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I I think that that's certainly, and and we we've had conversation on this roundtable about you know types of of uh, core competencies that should be included in education that hasn't been like like teach me to do my literacy. taxes, teach me to do my taxes. Exactly. Why did financial I learn to cook? Cooking, food, yeah. <laughs> uh, food uh, uh nutrition, like things like that. So that that is certainly part of it. And I think this is where it's like where the conversation really should be. It's like well, we're still teaching the old way. You know, you're sitting in a classroom for you know if you're in high school like an hour, hour and a half you know the the teachers up there on a chalkboard or or maybe on one of those digital white uh, like digital whiteboards now and it's teaching like is that really the most effective way of doing it like have focus time and then have just self uh, kind of uh, focused like research time and and, and uh, self like kind of collection time where you you have more of that that freeform nature and because you you constantly see the 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 struggle in the transition from elementary school to high school to post-secondary education because they're all taught very differently yeah and i think like if you kind of streamline and have it a bit more cohesive
0: that you set more students up for success as well as three people with disabilities we should at least take the opportunity to express an accessibility angle on here one of the reasons why i would be concerned about an outright ban is because in rain, it would take accessibility tools out of people with disabilities hands as accessibility technology becomes more mainstream and utilizes through a phone
12: absolutely i can relate to this because in middle school i didn't have my own cell phone but i would you know borrow someone else's phone Uh, during school but it was banned like we weren't allowed to have it out even in the hallways and uh, but I would commute a lot take the transit to the hospital but um, you know so I had to have a phone on me Um, so my mom would come to school and talk to the principal talk to my teachers just explain why I need it on me why this is important uh, because of accessibility issues and they were understanding so I think just you know, talking to your teachers, talking to um, the staff is having an open co- communication like that is is important.
0: Yeah, Alex, uh, I think you've waited on this before. I believe during the time of the Quebec uh, story breaking in the fall, you and I grappled with this during a daily poll. But your take on the accessibility angle within the debates.
4: Yeah, it's certainly something that has to be considered, and it's tough to have a kind of blanket consensus on accessibility, because as we all very well know, accessibility (laughs) is very uh, um, kind of individualized for the person's needs. I I would just kind of think and and want to find out, like, what are the needs in the moment? Like, what is it that uh, need to be addressed in terms of accessibility barriers during that classroom interaction time like not to harp on the same kind of idea because if you take that same approach and i i'm sure in the modern setting a lot of the the notes the the planning like the details are now presented in a digital format so like do you need to have access to those types of uh notes and, and slides and things like that right in the moment or can you be present listening or hearing or reading in 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 terms of using whatever ability you do have to be present in the moment and then having those notes uh, draw on after like i I think that 's really where maybe there's a different type of approach or maybe having those notes available after the direct lesson Mm -hmm. takes place that you can
0: also access them. That'd be good for everybody. Everybody should get access to those notes. You know, that that would just just be generally better. That just sounds like a better way to do in school. Alex, thank you for this. Nazreen, thank you for this as well. Talk to both of you tomorrow. All about the Super Bowl. Super, super pumped. Super pumped for the Super Bowl. Uh, You may find this surprising, but I'm taking next week off. I need a full week to recover from all the excitement that I'm feeling. Around the Super Bowl. Let's bring in Ramya Amuthin, who is the co host of Kelly and Ramya, which hits the airwaves at 2 p.m. Eastern Time this afternoon, not long after Access Tech Live finishes up on AMI television. That show starts at noon. Hey, Ramya, what's coming up on the show today?
6: Dave, we're talking about attachment theory. This is a psychological. Um theory that uh, a lot of people may or may not know. If you're on TikTok like I am learning about this stuff, then you may have some idea. But Fern Lulham's going to break down the theories for us. Uh, Also on our accessible gaming segment, Marcus McCracken is talking to us about The Last of Us 2. It was remastered for the PS5. He's going to talk accessibility, of Mm. course, as a blind gamer. And we have our weekly roundtable. Content development specialist Karen McGee is joining us for that. And of course, Kelly picked a whole bunch of topics that we uh,
0: put through. (laughs) It's a total, a total ambush. Yeah, The Last of Us Part Two. It's been a couple of years since that one got released as a, as a game on yep. the uh, PS4, and it was lauded pretty much across the board for all the work they did in terms of making the game accessible. So it'll be interesting to mm-hmm. get the perspective on sort of the reskinning, the re-release, the redevelopment of the game uh, heading into the next generation of a system. That's cool. I, I, I think getting the perspective of people who actually play the game is great because I can tell you, oh, all these accessibility features, here's what they're averaging advertising. advertising, but I I don't have a PS5, I haven't played the game, not my kind of game, not the kind of game I like, so I'm happy to get someone's actual lived perspective on it rather than just a corporate innuendo. (laughs)
6: <laughs> definitely and you know accessibility features are added in of late to a lot of games that um, blind gamers were playing before it was accessible just because of the enjoyment or the uh, you know they, they kind of found workarounds or audio cues to help them play so sometimes you actually get really interesting perspectives like they tried to make this better with accessibility but i turned this feature off because i don't necessarily love it yeah I hearing a lot of that with mortal kombat so it's interesting
0: Ooh, a little Mortal Kombat talk. All right. I love it it when you all start talking video games. All right, Ramya, have yourself a lovely day. Talk to you tomorrow. Get ready for a Super Bowl conversation. Are you ready?
6: Okie dokie. I will try to be as ready as
0: possible. We will ask you no sports questions. It will simply be entertainment questions and snacking questions.
6: You know us so well. Probably T-Swift is going to come up in
0: there as well. Uh, there's an outside opportunity for T-Swift to come up because <laughs> then we can put it in the podcast description and pump up our downloads. Ramya, have a great day. Yep. That is Ramya <laughs> Edwuth. You too. can you can find Kelly and Ramya, 2 p.m. Eastern time on the mighty airwaves of AMI Television. That's all the time there is for the show today. Things kick off again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. The news panel will dip its toes into the world of American politics. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun.